We need to start with some bad news. Arkansans simply don't vote. So why is the turnout so low in Arkansas? And does it look like things will get better in this election? Hi, I'm Matthew Moore, and this is Natural Election, a podcast from Ozarks at Large and KUAF, all about elections in Arkansas. Throughout this series, we'll examine what it takes to vote in the natural state ahead of the primaries on May 24th. I'll go ahead and answer the last question first. Will it be easier to vote in this year's election? As Rachel Sanchez-Smith tells us, voters face many challenges to the May 24th primary after the debates at the Arkansas Supreme Court left four contentious voter laws standing, laws that will likely lower voter turnout even more. The four Republican Party-backed laws aim to tighten protections for elections in an effort to address voter fraud concerns and secure election integrity. The first of the laws, Act 249, targets voters without photo ID, who were previously able to sign a sworn statement and then cast their provisional vote. The act now prohibits this alternative and requires voters to present identification to the county clerk by noon the following Monday. Act 973 focuses on the deadline to submit a mail-in ballot, which previously was the Monday before an election. The law now pushes the deadline to mail the ballot to the Friday before. Act 728 prohibits people from standing within 100 feet of a polling place, except to vote. According to critics, the bill bans actions such as providing water or snacks to voters waiting in long lines. And Act 736 now requires a voter signature on an absentee ballot to be checked against their voter registration, a signature that may have been first signed a year or for some, maybe decades ago. Election workers used to be able to verify multiple signatures. Those were a lot of laws I just threw out at you, but in order to simplify their effect on Arkansans, I spoke to Christian Adcock, voting rights and public policy specialist for Disability Rights Arkansas, who said many communities will face the burden of the laws, particularly the disabled community. I think it's just important to realize that people with disabilities are affected more proportionally, I would argue, than most, because so many of them rely on government programs or, you know, and not not just, you know, social security disability stuff. I'm talking about programs for housing, things like public transportation, things, so many things that they need to be able to live independently and thrive in their communities. And it's a shame that so often their voice goes unheard because of these other restrictions that I kind of believe were made without even taking them into account. And I imagine those policies are worsened in rural communities that are hard to access, that lack all of the the privileges that a larger city and more urban area can afford. Absolutely. Because like, and you said afford, and that's kind of the, the best, the best word for it is a lot of these rural areas don't have the infrastructure. They don't have, you know, the, things like public transportation, things like, you know, a, a large number of polling places, they just don't have them. And so it becomes even more of an issue. And since so much of this state is rural, it's really something that needs to be considered. In the before times, before COVID, we went out and did a lot of polling place surveys around the state. We issued a report in, I want to say, 2018 about sort of the um, physical accessibility issues at the polls in Arkansas. We found 
something like 90% of the polling places in the state and found that over half had some sort of barrier to accessibility. Now, is there a legal requirement for polling places to be physically accessible? I'm sure there is, but by the sounds of the survey. Absolutely. Under the ADA, uh, the Americans with Disabilities Act, polls are required to be physically accessible. Where you run into issues sometimes is that there's a little bit of confusion because the Americans with Disabilities Act does not cover churches, except when churches are used as polling places. And so for that one day every you know two to four years, that building needs to be accessible. And I think that, like I said, I think that just causes a little bit of confusion. And in a lot of the more rural areas of the state, you know, a church can be the only kind of large community building for miles. So I work with a lot of them to come up with sort of temporary accommodations that they can use. Um, I know up in Washington County, they made really good use of a lot of rubber mats and cones. And, you know, it's basically whatever works and don't let perfect be the enemy of good when it comes to this stuff. On a larger level, I think that the state could do better with sort of supporting these efforts and getting out and making sure that things are good in the first place. Um, I, I realize they've got a lot on their plate, but this is a this is an important issue. I mean, just specifically looking at the four new laws with the aim to make protections around Arkansas elections more stringent, one, Act 249, copies of IDs, which means additional trips, voter signatures, deadline changes for mail-in ballots. How do these policies affect disabled communities? Yeah, a lot of those laws will have an effect on the disability community in Arkansas. And again, I think it's something where there was so much concern over whether or not you agree with it, right or wrong, a concern over election security that, again, I think it's just something that people didn't think about, which is far too common as far as not just Arkansas, but especially in Arkansas, it's people just aren't aware of the sort of knock-on effects that these things can have on the disability community. You mentioned the uh, requirement for I, to bring in ID. If you go in and vote a provisional ballot now, you can no longer, I, I forget what it was called, but there used to be a statement that you could sign that basically said, you know, I am who I say I am. And they've done away with that as a valid substitute for ID. So now you're asking people who may not have reliable access to transportation to take an extra trip on top of voting or people who may not have ID in the first place often, because you know if you're a person with a disability, you might not drive, you might not have ever had a need for an ID. You, there is a, there is a no cost ID available just for people with voting, but again, it's something they have to go and get. And so that's an issue. And that the ID issue affects more than just the disability community, it can affect seniors, it can affect a lot of folks. This certainly makes voting feel more like a privilege rather than a right for some. To understand more of the context behind the laws, I contacted State Senator Greg Letting to analyze the laws from a policy and legislative perspective. I do think among some lawmakers, there is a sincere intent to ensure that our elections are secure and that only people who are eligible to vote are voting. Um, and that's that's good. We should we all want that. Uh, but there's also absolutely a strategy behind some of it too, to discourage voters. Um, and not just discourage, uh, in some cases, just all voters, just depressed turnout overall, but also specific certain types of voters in order to give um, certain candidates an advantage at the ballot box. 
And what is the general feeling about these laws in the legislature? I mean, is there broad sweeping support for them? Is it more contentious than we believe them to be? I would say that they are contentious, but not to the point that the uh, lawmakers who oppose them are in any position to stop them from passing. And on that topic of voter turnout, every cycle there are talks of voter turnout increasing, right, in Arkansas. But when we compare that to the grand scale of the eligible population, it's pretty minute. Does that participation concern you? Absolutely. I mean, Arkansas has consistently ranked at or near the bottom when it comes to voter registration. Uh, It's not a new problem. It has gotten a little worse the last couple cycles, which I think in part does speak to the negative effect of the legislation we've been passing. But poor turnout is not a new phenomenon here in Arkansas. And that's frustrating. And I, I think there are a number of reasons. I think one of the biggest reasons is that for almost all of our state's history, we have been a one party state. The Democratic Party was an unchecked power for some 140 years until Republicans captured the majorities in the legislature in 2012. Um, But unfortunately, now the problem of one party control that we, you know, had in the past, we're we're there again with Republicans now enjoying supermajority control. And that just means that there is no check on the worst impulses. Um, And I, I really think we'd be better served if we had more balance. What kind of efforts and policies can stimulate better turnout in these elections? That's tough. Obviously, there can go a lot of work that can go into registering new voters. Uh, but it's one thing to register voters. It's another thing to make sure that they actually turn out and go vote. And here again, I think we have we're up against some challenges. Um, one is that because one party dominates so thoroughly, in a lot of cases, there might not be multiple candidates on the ballot to choose from. You might just be stuck with, you know, I, I'm the only candidate for Senate District 30 here in the ballot in Fayetteville. Um, there are other places where the only option is a Republican candidate. And so people might not feel the need to go turn out to vote. Um, they might not feel that their vote is going to matter. There's also a matter of, I think, just this overall stasis, you know. So there's probably also this sort of apathy, like it doesn't really matter right now who's in charge. I'm still facing the same challenges that are, you know, a lot of people in our state have been facing for such a long time now. I know we haven't been through a cycle yet with these acts in place, but have any of your constituents contacted you about these laws? I did hear from constituents who were adamantly opposed to this legislation. Um, A lot of them talk about how, you know, we have this new requirement where your signature, whenever you signed your, your voter registration card has to match your current signature. And for a lot of people, you know, that might've been something you did years and years and years ago, and your handwriting just sort of evolves over time. Or maybe you have a medical condition to where your your penmanship has changed. And so it was one area where, you know, I, I don't know that that was a necessary security function. I think it was just one more thing that we decided to throw into the process uh, to, again, you know, n- no one single hurdle uh, might keep somebody from voting. But if we add all these little hurdles, uh, it can make the process more complicated. Despite the complexity and oftentimes irritation that voting often comes along with, Letting said that voting is crucial and that the public's votes matter each and every time. I think it is absolutely important to stress the fact that your vote absolutely matters each and every time. It it doesn't matter if you're with the candidate who's going to cruise to victory or you're, you're pulling for an underdog. Just engaging in the process is such an important thing. But also there are so many races that do come down to just a handful of votes. Uh, especially when we're talking about the local level. Uh, But even in the state legislature, in the last cycle, we had um, a candidate lose by about 16 votes, uh, or I should say an incumbent held on by just 16 votes. 
um, whereas another incumbent lost by just a few dozen votes. Um, Representative Megan Godfrey in Springdale, um, somewhat famously back in 2018, ousted a Republican incumbent by just about 30 votes. Um, oftentimes we've had school board races settled by votes in the single digits. So your vote absolutely matters. And I would just encourage you to take the time to vote in this year's primary next month on May 24th, and then to also make sure you turn out on November 8th. If you've made it this far into the podcast without believing that your vote matters, here's a story that Senator Ledding shared with me at the end of our interview that I just had to check out, which might change your mind. We actually had a school board member uh, in Greenland. This was in the last seven years or so. She was unopposed and still lost because nobody voted. She didn't even go, didn't think she had to because she was unopposed, but the law says you have to, you know, get a majority. And so (laughs) that's uh, the only thing more embarrassing than being the only person to vote for yourself would to literally have nobody. To have no one vote. Trish Morris, the candidate in question, ran unopposed in 2017 to be a Greenland school board member. According to the Northwest Arkansas Democratic Gazette, this isn't the first time a Washington County school board candidate lost their election despite running unopposed. Earl Hunton and Owen McAdoo lost their bids for seats in 2011 on the Lincoln and West Fork boards, respectively, because they failed to garner one vote. Co-host Rachel Sanchez-Smith spoke to State Senator Greg Letting and Disability Rights Arkansas's Christian Adcock. What's going on here? Why are so few eligible Arkansans voting, even for themselves? Daniel Carruth digs deeper into the causes and consequences of low voter turnout. So first off, a bit of good news. Voter turnout in the U.S. hit a record high in 2020 at nearly 67 percent. And Arkansans' electoral participation also ticked up by about 6.7 percent from 2016. Now, the bad news, that 54% turnout still puts Arkansas in last place for participation behind all 50 U.S. states and the District of Columbia. And on top of that, only 1.4 million of the state's 3 million population are registered to vote. That's all from a 2020 U.S. Election Commission report. So I sat down with Janine Perry, a political science professor at the University of Arkansas, to find out what's behind the low engagement. She explains the relatively high numbers we saw in the 2020 general election don't really translate to primary voting. And Arkansas in the last 10 years has typically been somewhere between 16 and 20 percent of eligible voters. Um, turning out in those primary elections. It doesn't matter whether it's like 2018 or this year, 2022, where almost all of the state-level races are up, or whether it's a presidential election year, which tends to get, ironically, more people excited because it has actually less to do with our day-to-day lives. It doesn't really matter. It's low. And I mean, in looking at those numbers, I mean, you study voter behavior. What is it? Is it just that it's at a different time? There's not a lead up to it, a good lead up to it? Is it a marketing problem? What what is it? (laughs) There seem to be a lot of factors in it. On the causal end of it, there seem to be a number of things that that are sort of happening at once. It's not like it's ever really been high. 
partly seems to just escape the notice of a lot of people. We know that it happens many months in advance in most states. It happens many months in advance of the general election. So it, it, it is kind of a marketing problem in that sense. And in fact, I was looking at a piece of research today that showed that summer primaries, even controlling for other factors, have higher, significantly higher voter turnout on average than states that have spring primaries. And the only thing that these authors were speculating is that it's just kind of closer when people think about elections traditionally. So if you are asking people to begin thinking about how they want government to run and which team they hope will win in July or August instead of in you know March, April, or May, maybe they're more interested. Open primaries where you don't have to decide you know whether you feel like a Republican or a Democrat um, in advance of the election, but you can show up and participate. Those tend to have higher turnout, meaning instead of being 18%, you know it's 23%. Hooray! Those are some of the like levers, you know, that people who are concerned about this know from looking at the available data we could push or pull uh, if we were trying to at least get modest increases. And but what are we seeing or, or what are we not thinking about when, when people don't show up for the polls? We're leaving it in the hands of other people who are hardcore partisans. When elections come to center on these primary elections and you have this really small group of people participating in those primary elections, the people who emerge, the candidates who emerge out of those primaries tend to be more polarized in their views. So in the end, when they sail through the general election against no or very weak competition from the other party, they go into the legislature already thinking typically about whether or not somebody might in their party try to tackle them next time. So they have, in fact, a disincentive to compromise and an incentive to be as kind of inflammatory to the point of being incendiary as they can, because they need to, again, that concept of virtue signaling is really useful. But they need to display their credentials inside that one party. Those are the people they need for the for the vote. And then it, there are people who track, like we do on the Arkansas poll, they use state-level polling to try to figure out, like, well, what does the average voter want? What the average voter wants is not all that different from what the average voter wanted 10 or 20 years ago, but it's quite different now from what the average legislature is producing. So if we want relatively low tax rates, but also fairly robust public services for kids and old people and people without health care, that's not what we've incentivized on the right at all in those in those primary in those primary elections. What's the remedy for that? A lot of us are focusing on campaign finance reform. Um, a few of us are focusing on nationalization and the decline uh, of local media and what's that what that's doing to voter turnout and polarization and the way that all kind of spirals together uh, and there may just institutional reform we were set up as many of your listeners will know to give the minority point of view a lot of weight in our institutions particularly our national institutions so a handful of states can change the outcome of a presidential election via the Electoral College. They can hold up legislation that 60-70% of Americans say they want, depending on how you ask the question, because of the supermajority procedural elements in the U.S. Senate. So there are 
probably would need to be some like major institutional constitutional type changes. Although ironically, the way you would do that would be through the very states that are getting their way <laughs> right now because of the way those institutions are crafted to um, protect the minority's point of view. Yeah, and I'm also wondering, you know, kind of going back to the, the campaigning and the marketing aspect, but in-person campaigns, people going to maybe community events. I mean, for the past two years, you haven't been able to have community events where a lot of campaigning used to happen. I mean, are we seeing that disappear not just with COVID, but in general. Yes. 2014 was the end of personalism in Arkansas politics, which stayed here longer than almost any other state. While all the other states had these glossy TV ads, and you could sort of plug and play these national sinners and saints, and then um, these really big national organizations would come in with a script and you know some B-roll film, and uh, they could make or break, you know, a local candidate. And you don't have to have ever met that candidate. You know, that candidate doesn't have to do really anything other than be on TV all the time when the boomers are watching it and say things they like. And th that messaging was happening. Arkansas candidates were unusual in that it was very hard to do ad buys here because we didn't have a big metropolitan area like Atlanta. So I actually remember doing a study in 2002 uh, with my friend Jay Barth down in central Arkansas. And we were going around to the commercial television stations and they're required um, under federal law to give us their ad buy data. So anyway, we were going around and we were also interviewing people who were active in the 2002 U.S. Senate race between Tim Hutchinson and Mark Pryor. And of course, Mark Pryor upset Tim Hutchinson, a Democrat upset a Republican in that race. What people told us over and over again, the allies of the parties, the national parties, the state parties, the candidates themselves, the interest groups who were involved in all the spending, they're like, we hate buying ads in Arkansas because you have to buy ads in like six markets, six small media markets in order to cover even 80% of likely voters. You gotta buy in Louisiana, you gotta buy in Missouri, you gotta buy in Oklahoma, you gotta buy in Mississippi, you gotta buy in Tennessee, and you have to buy in Arkansas. And it's really expensive for us to do that. So Arkansas candidates were continuing to shake hands and kiss babies. And they were going down to the Gillette Coon Supper, and they were going to Hope to eat watermelons, and they were just like still having to talk about who their, you know, who their mom, you know, went to college with, you yeah. know, up there in Fayetteville or whatever it was. So that friends and family plan was still in full operation, retail politics. But in 2010, that all started to just crumble. And by 2014, you might recall that um, Tom Cotton, who was really just a, a very junior member of the U.S. House, ended up taking out Mark Pryor on the Democratic side. And it's probably a bigger deal that Mark was a prior than that he was a Democrat at that point. And Cotton really didn't have to go to any of the festivals. He didn't have to march in the parades. He just had to be on TV and shout, Obamacare and Nancy Pelosi and Harry Reid and you know whoever he could just make any Democrat even a prior wear those albatrosses around his neck and that was it game over so that was that marked like the bookmark of the full nationalization of Arkansas politics that's sort of playing into who is voting so what does the voter look like the people who are turning out for these elections for the primaries in Arkansas who is that voter that voter is older. That voter is whiter. That voter often has more income, if not more education, than is the average. 
and that voter is just more conservative. I try so hard to get my state politics students to consider, and my American national government politics even, you know, the freshmen. I know y'all are real interested in Bernie <laughs> Sanders, right? That tends to be the way students are facing right now. They're always oppositional to whatever the power was, and they came of age during the Trump administration, and they only focus on national politics and only, only focus on the executive branch. That's all really interesting, but because you guys are sitting out these off-year elections, and certainly because you're sitting out these primaries, you're really ceding all kinds of power, actual policymaking power, to people who look closer to the way I look um, than the way you look. So it really doesn't matter. Even if you were able to elect a Bernie Sanders, you would still get your, you would still leave your state legislature to be, as most state legislatures are, at least 60-40 Republican-Democrat. And they would be the ones who make abortion regulation, gun regulation, climate, you know, related regulation, all the things that Bernie Sanders can't fix and Elizabeth Warren can't fix, you know, and, and all these things that you all, I know, are so passionate about right now. Uh, but it's just real hard to get their attention and for them to see how much they have ceded, you know, to these to these regular voters. So that contracting and expanding of the electorate is is I think the thing that's producing um, this sort of weird sense that but we all went out and voted and they're still in charge and we're not getting the policies we want. You're going to have to vote every time, and I mean in so-called off-year elections for sure because that's when most of those state things are up, those state positions, and you're going to have to vote in primary elections. Until then, um, you know, the boomers are just going to continue to show up and the politicians they elect are going to ask, are going to give them more and more and more of what they want and not what you want. You'll hear more from that interview with U of A professor Janine Perry in next week's episode. You've been listening to Natural Election, a podcast production of Ozarks at Large and KUAF Public Radio. This show is co-hosted by Daniel Carruth and Rachel Sanchez-Smith. I'm Matthew Moore. If you're looking for more voter information in your local county, head on over to KUAF.com vote. Be sure to subscribe for free to this show wherever you get your podcasts. We'll see you next Tuesday.